It's all politics, all of the time. From the Blue Devil Hub, this is the News Cycle. I'm Max Davis-Housefield. Coming up, we talk with representatives of the local political parties in a special political roundtable episode. Today's Monday, March 21st. Just to be clear, the following interview was recorded on March 3rd. So for our special discussion, we're joined by Linda Dios, the chair of the Yolo County Democratic Party, and Jim Fine, the communications director for the Yolo County Republicans. Thank you both for taking the time to speak with me today. You're very Thank welcome. you for having me. Thank you. Yeah, so um, maybe starting with you, Mr. Fine, could you tell me what your party stands for on the local level at this point in time? Yeah, so our the Old County Republican Party stands for a lot of the same things that uh, the national party's standing for right now uh, in terms of main issues, especially uh, we're really concerned with cost of living. Uh, in California especially, Davis included, uh, cost of living's crazy. Uh, and some of the things that we're seeing from the current administration in the White House, uh, especially to do with energy policy, are increasing the cost of living, um, it, especially gas. Gas prices are out of control right now, and one of the one of the co- contributing factors to that is that we are not investing in the, the pipe energy, the gas pipelines that uh, the prior administration wanted to have in place. Uh, so, so we we don't have enough gas. Um, to, to keep our costs low while we while uh, there, there are shocks to the to the gas market like we're seeing right now in Ukraine and Russia. Ms. Diaz? Locally, statewide and nationally, it's, you know, my job is to grow the party. So right now, just looking at the numbers, we've got about 62,000 Democrats registered here and about 24,000 Republicans, and then we have to decline the state. And what we're focused on here locally is housing. <laughs> that kind of comes around to cost of living and be it housing, we can call it affordable housing, workforce housing, getting more people in living situation is very important to us. Another huge deal is the Green New Deal, is making sure we're addressing climate change issues. We're very concerned of our continued reliance on carbon-based fuel. And I get it. I grew up with having the cars, all of that, and it's a tough thing to transition from. But we got to start looking at that because the world is changing and we are contributing to those changes. So, frankly... Housing is huge. Healthcare would be another one of, can get into that later and then addressing the effects of climate change. Yeah, so let's uh, take a minute more on climate change. That's really a major issue for us youth. We really recognize that um, it's an issue that will need to be addressed by our generation. And uh, Mr. Fine, you talked about energy, about getting gas in there. How, what's your guys' plans, your party's plans to tackle the climate crisis? So uh, there is a divide within the Republican Party on spe- specifically to do with climate change. We have, we do have members that completely agree with it, agree that it, it is a big problem uh, and others that are less inclined that way. Um, what we do agree with or, or some consensus positions are like that uh, in terms of what just sticking with gas for a moment. If we don't build gas pipelines in the United States, we're going to be getting that gas elsewhere in the short and medium term, at least. And that gas is going to come from countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia. Both those countries have less environmental regulations than we have here. So in the end, we're actually increasing our pollution level uh, in in terms of the full world, uh, while while the numbers look different. Um, And so... It, it is counterproductive to to halt those projects in the United States. In terms of renewable energies, there is definitely a place for that. But those technologies still haven't matured enough to be able to take the place of uh, of fossil fuels at the moment. Um, I, I, I think that there's definitely a place, but we need to make sure that it is headed at a steady pace and those technologies are developing. Uh, so solar panels, for, for example, 
they, they just don't have the currently the ability to store the energy from that comes from uh, so comes from solar panels for times when the, the sun isn't out. Uh, so, so we need to make sure we have a combination of those things. Another thing is a nuclear power in that uh, we need to make sure we have nuclear power. One of the things California is doing is we currently have two or we have one nuclear reactor. We just phased one out and we're going to phase out the other one very shortly. That nuclear reactor, I believe accounts for roughly 10% of California's energy. And that's going to increase energy prices. And nuclear is not officially a renewable energy, but it does not cause all that much pollution and it is very safe. Ms. Diaz? Sure. Um, I, I think Mr. Fine has a point that we're in a transition here and working to find a way to go from a carbon-based fuel system to a non-carbon-based system. And there's going to have to be steps in between that. To, how do we account for that? I, um, the party itself is committed to giving businesses incentives to businesses, incentives to individuals to convert their homes, their businesses, et cetera, over to renewable energy sources. And that could be anywhere from you know, going all electric in one's home. In Davis here, we're promoting the idea that any new developments be built all electric with no natural gas pipes coming in, into the homes. That's an example of having microgrids where, as you mentioned, Mr. Fine, the idea of having battery storage, you know, bringing that into local control in that regard. Um, we have our Valley Clean Energy, where we are again wanting to continue to promote having local control of those energy sources at a state and federal level and even an international level. There are, of course, challenges on that. And we see what's going on now with the war in Ukraine and what's how that affect well, how that has affected our gas prices, et cetera. Um, I don't know if new pipelines are they I, or is the right direction to go in and my party does not support that. So regardless of where I'm at on that, <laughs> is something else as well as with nuclear power. I mean, I, I'm seriously going to date myself here in that in 1984, I was a nuclear freeze voter. <laughs> I was out there marching and doing all of that. I was down at Diablo Canyon to shut it down. I was marching to shut down Rancho Seco in Sacramento. We have to look at that. Nuclear has, I'm, I'm sorry, this is not the party. This is me. N nuclear has to be in the picture. Mm -hmm. Safe nuclear. <laughs> Yeah, there are common grounds within the Republican Democratic Party. Of course, clearly, of course. So, uh, one of those common grounds that you brought up was uh, how the power actually gets to people. And I'm I'm asking right now about PG&E primarily and uh, the wildfires that uh, mm -hmm. some of their faulty uh, lines have caused. That's been on the minds of a lot of Californians most of the year right now. How can we prevent those deadly wildfires? And maybe it's regulation of the power companies. Maybe it's better forest management. What do you guys think? Um, oh, would you would you like to go first? Sure, I'll go first in this one. Take, take team over to you. <laughs> I am so frustrated on in situations, be it water, electricity, things like that, that we need, that those are in private hands of any type of, any type of structure. I think they should all be pu be publicized and be done through government, through the public good. I'm so tired of a company like PG&E where they privatize profit and make public their risk. I mean, we, we, <laughs> the tax taxpayers, soon you too, <laughs> will, you know, have to pay for PG&E's mistakes. That is wrong. Absolutely wrong. I think that should be, we get the risk. We also get the benefit from that. So the party believes that we should be going into a more of a public model. For example, SMUD in Sacramento area, Sacramento Municipal Utility District versus a privately shareholder, share a private shareholder company like PGNE. So I'll start there and then. Okay. Yeah. So uh, PGNE is quite a concerning company, uh, the, the way the way it's operated in California. I don't believe the solution is to to uh, publicize it or 
I'm not sure how you, uh, it's going to say nationalized, but that's on the national level uh, right. or take it, have it, have it, have the government take it over. But there certainly needs to be reforms. Some of those things that could look like is um, you could base the base the pay of executives off of how much they can get energy, the the cost of energy and um, uh, their performance bonuses based off how 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 far you can get the cost of energy from the national average. That way, you're incentivizing them just to move below and cut costs as much as possible. Another thing we have to do is proper forest management. Uh, California does not does not manage our forests well. We don't cut down trees that in dead vegetation in the amount we need to. There's millions of acres of um, of forest, and we just haven't managed that well at all. And it's been years. I mean, we we live in California, we're the fifth largest economy in the world. We we should be able to deal with the the basic elements like fire. And just to piggyback on that for a sec, I agree with you most definitely on forest management. You know, we went through a century basically of fire suppression <laughs> and not allowing fires to burn, such that when pioneers folks showed up here, when Native Americans, first peoples were here, for every acre, there was 10 trees per acre. Now we are at 400 trees per acre. You know, that's not sustainable. So the difficulty on that is finding a place to, you know, we take out all that wood. We don't have the capacity to do something with it. And we either burn it in the forest or we burn it somewhere else and that continues the whole carbon situation. So that's a tough one. Yeah. Very big. I, I do believe the other thing you mentioned was water. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of water, the way California allocates its water, about 50% of the water we allocate in California goes to the Delta fish. Um, I, I love the fish. They're, they're great to live, but I don't think they should be getting the same amount of water as the combined amount of consumers and farmers. Uh, we're also a net exporter of water to the Pacific Ocean. Um, a lot of our a lot of our water flows out from our uh, uh, rivers into the Pacific Ocean. Um, that's just lost water. That's so. So yes, sometimes we we may be in a drought, but at the same time, we're not doing everything we can to keep the water that we do have. And I would like, and I agree with the sense of that we need some more storage options, and that's why the idea of putting the water back into our aquifers. We're doing that here locally. Woodland has, a, I can't remember what it's called, where they pump the water back in. Woodland has a huge project doing that. Um, we want to grow that here in Yellow Canyon. We are not subsiding like the Central Valley has by them sucking so much water out of the aquifer. You know, they're going down several feet, 20 feet in some areas. We don't have that yet. I think the idea is we, it's, we're running out of space to build wholesome lakes. <laughs> you know, Lake Shasta. Instead, we need to be looking at putting out water in and underground and storing it there. I, to- I totally agree with having more storage in that way. I, yeah. yeah, I agree with that too. I don't believe yeah. we've built a reservoir in California in over three, four decades. In the South they have, but not up, not up here. You're absolutely yeah. right. And there's one going in further North. And I, I just had the, the strangest sensation. I was down in San Diego at my in-laws. And I was in rain down there, and they had no problem with rain and or with storage. They really did some work many years ago, but they're set. We're not <laughs> to that end. So to kind of change gears here, what if you guys heard uh, from local people uh, about the most important issues on their minds? Why don't you go ahead, Jim? All right, yeah. Uh, cost, cost of living is definitely the main concern. Um, price of education. I'm a college student. Um, and the cost of education is definitely a concern uh, among college students. One of the things that I think should be done to lower the cost of education is we currently in a lot of universities have more uh, more administrators than students. That shouldn't be the case. Um, 
if you want to know how the price of college is increasing, just look at that. Um, it, that that to me is it's dumbfounding. Well, there here is something you and I completely agree on. <laughs> that my day job is I'm a bankruptcy attorney and I advise um, recent graduates on student loans. Not so much always through the bankruptcy process, but I help negotiate those issues with the loan servicers. And it has just been, to me, a crime to watch the cost of tuition going up and the number of use that the administrators going up, you know, threefold, fourfold, fivefold. And that, to me, is terrible. So the Democratic Party, here's where I can come back around to that, <laughs> in support, wants to build on our community college system, want, you know, more students going that route. I wish I had done that. I, I would have saved a lot of money if I'd done that. But to come back to where you had said one of the issues that we hear from folks, and obviously when I'm talking to the students around here, it's the cost of education and the fear of the cost of education if they're high school going on to college, talking to them and their parents. I have two mini dorms next to me, you know, one on one side, you know, the three bedroom house with 12 people in there. <laughs> so it's cost of housing comes into that and the cost of living around that. I also hear a lot about criminal justice issues. Um, not so much defund the police. I don't hear that. What I hear is what other options do we have here? What do we do in a situation here? Again, in Yellow County, where we have a jail that's population was shrinking, but the budget for it was growing. <laughs> like, well, that's, we need to get that more aligned. What other diversion programs can we do where I understand the governor just put forward a deal for more um, mental health courts? Which one of the programs for that is first programs, pilot, that's the word, pilot programs is here in Yellow County. So it's been a place we've been able to look at that. So cost of housing, as you said, or cost of living in general, housing being part of that and energy costs, criminal justice reform, I hear about that, and the cost of education along with climate change issues. Crime is definitely an issue that's been mentioned quite a lot um, among pretty much everyone we talk to. Property mm -hmm. crime in Davis is a, a big issue. I remember that the within the first two weeks that I got my bike, my bike was stolen here. Um, <laughs> it's two weeks. Uh, wasn't happy about that. No. Um, one of the problems we have is that you can't, arrest people for stealing anything under $950. So what people can do is they can go to one store after another, just in a row, take $949. No one's going to touch them. Um, Governor Newsom at one point said that prosecutors should be quote unquote stacking those. And so if you steal 949 from one, 949 for another, you charge it as a felony. That's not how the law works. You can't stack it unless you were to steal from the same store twice. Um, that that's a huge problem. I don't think if you're stealing bread, you should go to jail. Like I'm not saying that, but I think for the people who are going from store to store to store, that's that's what you call having crime as your job, and that's not productive for society. That's dangerous. We see in San Francisco that stores are literally literally cutting their hours and leaving. Um, I was in D.C. just a while ago in stores like CVS in D.C. They have locks on their on their uh, laundry detergent because things are being stolen so much there. Uh, I don't know about you. That doesn't sound fun to me. It wasn't fun when I was there for that in the, in terms of that. Especially if you want clean clothes. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that no, I, some tweaks need to happen there, but I want to, the party is support seeing more equity between you know, the public defenders and the district attorneys, you know, what it is being charged, how are, how, what crimes are, they going after and you know who are they going after why in a county that we have three percent african-americans is the fact that 25 percent of the folks in jail are african-american that doesn't always line up to look at what's what people are going what they're going after and who's being charged for what so i'll see what your next question is <laughs> yeah so um Kind of related to that is uh, homelessness. We kind of touched on this with the cost of living. 
but it's a we're constantly reminded of it. Davis is much better than like San Francisco, but it's really hard to ignore it. And I've done you know a series of reporting on the crisis, and what I, what the experts have told me is it's really housing that needs to change at this point. What are your guys' thoughts on the homeless crisis and how best to resolve it? Would you like to go first on this one? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you. Oh, uh, so in terms of homelessness, I have homeless people that live about a one minute walk from where I live. Uh, so I'm seeing this every day. Uh, mental health, I think, is a certainly a component of it. A lot of homeless people, regardless if you offer them housing or not, may not accept it because of mental health issues. I think we need to uh, strengthen the mental health care system for these people. Um, we shouldn't just have people on the street kind of helpless like that. We also need to increase the amount of shelter space we have. But when we have that shelter space, when we have that mental health uh, health system in place, we also need to make sure that these people are in those places. We can't just have them wandering the street when there's a housing option available. It's not good for you. It's not good for me. It's not good for the homeless person uh, out there at all. Um, San Francisco, just a little bit outside, of, moving away from Davis for a little bit, spends... Uh, I want to say $80,000 per homeless person on dealing with the homeless issue. Now, $80,000 is more than the median income of the United States. Uh, so clearly that isn't a very efficient way of doing things. You can't just throw money at things uh, and hope homelessness goes away. So I don't think increasing the number of uh, other programs or the number of like that is the way to deal with it. Um, thank you. No, I, um, there isn't a particular point or spot <laughs> in our platform that addresses homelessness specifically. It goes to the point of additional housing, workforce housing, and in that direction. Also, it goes into, as Jim brought up, you know, increasing mental health service for folks. Um, it is so frustrating. Um, our house backs up to in North Davis during the Greenbelt, and we've had people camping just on the other side of our fence, <laughs> which can be odd. Um, but it's difficult. I mean, I choose, and my wife and I choose to, you know, give through our church. You know, we're providing services in that way. We are one of the founding people who, you know, funded Paul's Place, which is, you know, a homeless shelter that's being built here now in Davis. Our board of supervisors, you know, voted funding for that. The city of Davis is putting funding into that, which means all of us taxpayers are doing that. But uh, it is that is such a tough nut to crack. And I, again, I'm dating myself. <laughs> I remember when President Reagan shut down our mental health facilities and dumped them all on the streets. <laughs> I will never forget that. It was night and day difference. Now, I also remember the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and, and how crazy mental health facilities were. I mean that crazy in a bad way. So we have to do more in providing the mental health services. And you are absolutely right. It's so difficult for folks to stay on their meds, take meds, do anything around that. And we're increasing here in Davis, having more people who to respond to issues around homelessness that are not just an armed report, an armed response, because frankly, I, I don't want our cops to have to deal with that. They're, they're not counselors. That's not their job. They're there to provide public safety in other ways. So instead to send out social workers and that to help deal with the situation. But if we solve it, if you and I, the three of us can solve it here, we're going to get the Nobel Prize or something. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a big concern for all of us. Yeah, I really agree with both of the things you touched on, both of you, mental health and housing, um, and giving them consistent uh, support, as Jim said, and not letting them stay on the streets. But because uh, we're kind of running short on time, 
could we switch gears and kind of look at Washington and the bigger picture? What do you guys think are the most important bills uh, in D.C. right now that you'd like to see passed or other legislative priorities on the national level? Well, I'm, I, I think it's, it's at my turn. <laughs> That's you guys, not keeping track at this point. Um, the Build Back Better bill. You know, I want this darn infrastructure stuff going. I want the jobs here. I want the products built here. I want, the, I want it all done here so we're not dependent on Russia, China, especially China, <laughs> or our goods to come here. I want to be building them again here. I want infrastructure. I want these bridges fixed. I want these roads fixed. I want this done. I want to get it done. I, I would love to see the green, you know, the latest iteration of the Green New Deal that was work, working its way through. I want to see those done. I want that to happen. And then I guess I'd like to see the latest Supreme Court justice confirmed. <laughs> I think go boom, 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 and get done. Um, but policy-wise, the build back better. I just think we need to be focused there. And I think here's where we're going to get on differ a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of build back better, you mentioned road, roads and infrastructure. I agree with that in terms of physical infrastructure, but that was passed already, I believe, in the bipartisan okay. mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure bill. Right now we're going through the, the build back better bill, which has... Um, a litany of things. A lot of it doesn't have to do with infrastructure. Um, there's expansions of healthcare. There's expansions of um, uh, other social programs. And in uh, the grand total was three trillion dollars, and that was pared down. Um, we're currently at thirty trillion dollars in national debt, and three and and we're experiencing inflation last year of seven and a half percent. Uh, with the Russia crisis and increased energy prices, that inflation is going to increase even more now. I don't think spending more money is a good idea, um, especially when it's for uh, what would be called consumption purposes rather than uh, infrastructure uh, consumption purposes like healthcare, things like that, where um, it it's, might increase your standard of living, but it's not going to learn lead to productivity growth, long-term productivity growth. Uh, like infrastructure, you can have some positive benefits in terms of economic growth that'll offset the costs because shipping goods is cheaper or faster. Uh, but increasing health, uh, increasing healthcare coverage doesn't do that. Uh, so I, I think Build Back Better is going to lead to inflation. In terms of what I'm for currently in Washington, there is um, a bill that would improve our competitiveness with China, especially in terms of semiconductors. Uh, semiconductors are uh, what go into most electronic products. They're, they're becoming um, more and more used and um, there's a huge shortage and there's a dependent on a lot of dependence on China for a lot of those resources. And there's a bipartisan bill that would help fund our semiconductor industry further to decrease that reliance and increase our supply. Uh, I, I believe that is something pretty much everyone supports. Um, I also support there's a $10 billion uh, aid package for Ukraine uh, that would give them additional weapons uh, to, to help fight Russia. And um, I, I believe that's pretty consensus, uh, has pretty consensus support. Um, I did want to touch on housing for a moment because that that was mentioned uh, a, a few times uh, in, in California. There's been studies showing that approximately 50 percent of the cost of housing is due to permitting and regulation. Um, one of the ways local governments fund themselves is through permitting housing. So they have an incentive to have lots of permits and uh, and high prices on those permits. Uh, I think we ought to change that mechanism to lower housing costs. Uh, regulations in general, same thing applies. Um, the Environmental Quality Act that inhibits a lot of a, a lot of housing from being built. Um, it, it is it was put in place, I believe, in the '70s to um, to help protect the environment, but it actually doesn't in a lot of respects, actually do that. 
because while it restricts zoning and in that way it preserves some uh, habitats, at the same time, it uh, prohibits, um, it, it increases uh, commute times, which in turn increases pollution because you have cars going more. So it increases our cost of housing while not contributing to emissions reductions. Uh, so I think I think that ought to be revisited. Um, thank you. No, those, those are, very, are very good points. I just want to touch on the thing about um, healthcare as far as being part of infrastructure, mm-hmm. in, integral to um, what infrastructure means, healthcare and childcare, extended childcare credits and expanded healthcare for all. We can't put workers out into the workforce unless they have somebody to take care of their kids or they know that they can have health care. And I would love to get away from employee-based health care, that it's a different model that we can use. It's my wife has recently retired from Delta Airlines, where she's an international pilot. And it'd be so difficult for Delta to compete with Air France or Boeing to compete, compete with um, Airbus because Delta always had to build in, Boeing always had to build in the healthcare costs and these other things that were not part of the, their own government paying for that. So we were always at a competitive disadvantage for that reason. And then I want to circle back to what you said about CEQA. I, I, I'm smiling because the people who wrote CEQA live in Davis. <laughs> and <laughs> in that there's any discussion, and I mean that in all seriousness, they live here. I've met them. <laughs> they, um, I love the idea behind it, what it's meant to do, that, as you mentioned, habitat protection and such, but Davis won't build. It's NIMBYism. It is NIMBYism. And you can throw whatever you want at it and seek a lawsuit and this and that. It's that nobody wants it in their own backyard. And Davis keeps voting down developments. And then when a development does come through, they fight it in the courts and use secret to do that. So that's on all of us that live here in Davis and your parents, <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> My parents here. are uh, not guilty. They live in the Bay Area. So there you go. On this yeah, I know they voted on, on the communities there. But that's <laughs> something to be aware of that we should be able to cross party lines on mm-hmm. and talk about working together on those things. And just to say that we need to stop being in our silos of party. We yeah. cannot survive. <laughs> going forward in this partisan divide, it will not work. We need to find these areas of common ground and quit this disrespect of one another and of be they positions or individuals that has to stop for us to move forward. And I don't think anybody, any child likes to watch their parents fight or, or bicker. And I feel like that's what these, our two parties are doing sometimes. We have to find bridges to come across to one another. So if there's any time, Jim, that you want to talk and be public, and I would, I, my hand is out. <laughs> I think we need to be doing more of these in whatever forums come up to do that. I'd be happy to join you in that. Of course, yeah. Uh, I completely believe that, uh, uh, I mean, like this conversation, we've agreed on quite a few things, and I think uh, the public really doesn't see that. Uh, I, I was in, I worked in, I interned in Congress for a little while. And uh, while I was there, one of the things that's very surprising is most of the staffers are very collegial. Uh, Besides, there, there's subsets, the people that, that work for um, the more um, extreme lawmakers don't get along all that well with everyone else. But for the most part, everyone um, in the middle of the party and the uh, in the center of the party, uh, or I'm sorry, the center of the party and then the more moderate ends of the party um, all get along just fine. Um, and, and people don't see that on TV. And I think it, it's important just to put it out there that in a lot of cases, it really, they, there are differences, but there are a lot of uh, things we can agree on too. Yeah, so even even though you say there is that in Congress, how can we make that more and stronger so that we really can work together and cross party lines more and pass more bills together? Um, we need to get the center into positions of power, you know, and get the 
rabble rousers. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a polite term for some of the people, you know, to dial it down and get work done. And yes, it's lower. And at the, it's difficult. And I, and I, it's very hard to do. The former president's not helping. <laughs> He's ratcheting things up. And that part of your party, we need to find a way to, I don't know, get other voices heard that aren't just those. Yeah, so Mr. Fine, let me ask you, it's been a question that's been going around the media. Would you consider the future of your party to lie in Trump or are you ready to move past him? I don't think uh, I, I got to be got to think about this a little bit. Um, and you're speaking for yourself and for the party. I know that's very good. Yes. Um, the future of the party doesn't lie in any one individual. We have a lot of a lot of people within the Republican Party uh, do believe that Trump is the future. There's a lot of people that believe um, that that's not the case. There's a lot of things. I, I, there are some, there are consensus positions within the party, and you, you don't win elections just by focusing on uh, one individual or alienating those people either. Um, so, so I guess how I'd answer the question is, is to say that um, I don't believe that the future of the Republican Party is anti-Trump or pro-Trump. I think the future of the party is conservative and pragmatist. Um, and and kind of that's how we're, we're going to move forward. Yeah, so let's move on kind of to our last topic, and that's the midterm elections coming up. And especially with a local focus, California, Yolo County, what issues are you guys going to be looking at uh, during this process? Who, who goes next? <laughs> Christy, I uh, Sister Fine spoke last. Unless I'll, I'll take I'll take this one. Um, <laughs> so headed headed into 2022, I think. Um, uh, I'm sorry, you're asking for like kind of a what, what do you think is going to happen? Come 2022, or? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, kind of what issues are you looking at? What, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of it's the, the same issues uh, that we've been talking about in terms of cost of living in terms of uh, energy and in terms of um, in, ter in terms of crime. The one addition I'd make, because it's on the national level, is foreign policy. Um, the foreign policy of this, the current administration has been among the worst foreign policy I think we've seen in um, uh, my short lifetime and po possibly a lot longer. Um, in terms of Afghan, we, we had a a disaster in Afghanistan. Uh, I think it's pretty consensus that we people agree we should have pulled troops out, but the way it was conducted uh, was absolutely egregious. Uh, President and President Biden hasn't owned up to that either. Um, he, he, he insists that his generals told him to pull out of Bagram Air Base and remove troops in the way he did. I, I can de definitively state that's not the case. I have a certificate in terrorism studies. Uh, I, I understand foreign policy quite a bit. Um, we, you, you, when you withdraw from a country, you can't do it, it on a timeline and tell the enemy when you're withdrawing because then they're going to calculate all their actions based on that. That's not good. That, that, and then you, they're going to maximize your casualties, which is what we saw uh, with the attack on our airport um that that's just i'm gonna leave it there with afghanistan and then i'll move over and just uh bring up russia ukraine and say that um the conflict we have there i do believe was emboldened by uh biden's withdrawal from afghanistan because he saw we because pre, uh president putin or a dictator he's a dictator but his title is president um a president putin's invasion of ukraine was emboldened by Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan. I don't believe, I, I, I firmly believe that. And I believe our current response to uh, to the Ukraine crisis has been wholly insufficient in that we have not sanctioned the Russian, uh, put restrictions on the Russian oil and uh, oil and energy industry, which represents 
plurality of their economy. Um, and that's given them an out. Ms. Diaz? Um, as far as, I'll do midterms and foreign policy stuff since you brought that up. <laughs> um, on the midterms issue, it's going to be tough. Midterms are always tough for the party that's in power at that time. It's, you know, it's generally expected that the party in power are going to lose seats, <laughs> no matter which party it is. That kind of happens. People are like, oh, it's you. I want something else. Redistricting throughout the country is going to create some interesting issues <laughs> where that comes down. Some of those are still in being fought in the courts, and some have been decided one way or the other. So the issues that, again, are the same issues that I'm hearing locally that I brought up, that that is not any different. I'd say on a national level, we're going to be entering into choice. You know, issues of pro-choice, anti-choice, those things come into play. Money going to religious schools, not religious schools, you know, issues like that, or I see being played out more that way. Um, foreign service, or foreign service, um, foreign policy in that, that's a tough one because... And again, I'm, I'm going to throw under the bus because I can. You know, it was former President Trump who gave the date <laughs> and said, "Here's the date. We're here's the date that we're all going to pull them out." And Biden was in that treaty and had to follow that. Did it? Was it right? Wrong? Not saying, but it was done. The worst foreign policy. I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't go there. I, I we don't totally disagree on that. You mean? What did, what did I do, you know, four years ago when we had a president who was going to North Korea and saying, he's, he's my bud, who was going to Putin and saying, I believe you over our own security officials. That to me were foreign policy disasters. My dearest friend was the consul general for the for Germany. <laughs> and she had to run the friggin' embassy because a stooge was put, put in there who didn't know his left foot from his right foot. And that was happening over and over and over again. Half the, I mean, more than half of the State Department resigned because they couldn't do their jobs. So that was a foreign policy disaster that we're trying to rebuild now. Um, is it perfect? No, of course not. Am I disappointed in how what happened in Afghanistan? Always, always will be. I unfortunately remember what happened in Vietnam <laughs> and how we pulled out there or didn't pull out there. But I also saw the wonderful things that happened when the wall came down with Berlin, and that was you know, a Republican president coming forward. So I don't want you to think I'm just trashing him because he's that. <laughs> what we saw what happened there. You know, do we poke the bear of Russia by expanding NATO? Most, most definitely. How Putin was emboldened to do what he did, I don't know. I can't get inside the guy's head. I mean, we didn't stop him from taking Ukraine. That was with Obama. We didn't stop him from going into Syria. That was... Um, Trump. So, I mean, what do you say? I mean, we, we didn't stop him doing anything he wanted to do. I will. I'll just I'll just uh, chip in for a moment and say that uh, I do agree that uh, the way we do appointments in terms of ambassadors likely needs significant reform uh, because those are generally considered plum positions and are given to right. donors. Uh, exactly. And that happens okay. in both parties. That's not oh, Republican yeah. or Democrat. Oh, no. I, I do think that needs to change. I also think that because those are Senate confirmed positions and those positions are being held up so long in Congress, we definitely need to modify that process. <laughs> and the filibuster, et cetera. I know when, what is it, guy, the guy from Missouri, Josh Holly is holding up all of appointments. Like, Dude, let him go. Indeed, we need some real changes around that. Um, so that answer your question. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in terms of the midterms, specifically voting, how are your parties going to work on voter turnout, and especially how are they going to appeal to young or first-time voters, like some of the eighteen-year-olds and things like that? I'll start on that one. <laughs> so we are doing voter registration drives. We are in all of the communities here um, out there doing that. I can't tell. Jim, everything because then he'll go out and do what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, it's not rocket science. You just go out and register voters. There's a bill that's progressing here in California that has the support of our county clerk assessor, Jesse Salinas, to empower more youth 
to get involved in the voting process and to be involved in canvassing, not canvassing is the wrong word, and being involved when, at, when the voting's taking place, to be on site, to see how it happens, to see what the process is. When the ballots are picked up, this happens, this happens, that happens. Putting funding into that program, putting, putting together more academies like that that Jesse Salinas has done here in Yellow County, going into the high school not only here in Davis High, but all the high schools in the community. And he's nonpartisan. It's all about, here's where it's at. <laughs> here's how you vote. I guess, and then it's getting the issues across, you know, and saying, you know, we are the party to fight the effects of climate change. We are the party of blah, blah, blah. whatever you, you know, you're going to say you are the party of. And um, having that resonate. I mean, I'm proud of the fact that the Democratic Party has a platform that we can say, here's what we believe in. Jim, you guys got to work on that. There is no platform. <laughs> I looked. There's no party platform. <laughs> I don't know what the party stands for. And that's, that's archaic, I think, in some sense, to have it. And in other ways, it's help educating folks on what we are all about. So it's reaching in, into the schools. I mean, I when I run for office here, I've always said, Brighton's high school students to walk with me, to walk the streets. You know, we do that with, we have our local, um, the College of Dems. I'm sure there's the Republican party, same, <laughs> the College Republicans. <laughs> it's called, yeah. Dems, I don't know what, you, what, <laughs> what your group is called. You know, and having forums like this, you know, getting engagement from folks and being available to answer questions. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I will say under the about page on our website, I suppose we maybe need to make it a little bit more promise, uh, prominent, but on the about page, there is our platform. Um, in terms of voter outreach, the Republican Party has historically not done a good job of outreach to younger voters. I'm not far removed from being a minor. Um, so I, 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 and I know that I never was contacted at all uh, by the party. Part of that does have to go to, um, the first step is showing up. <laughs> and we need to do that in terms of younger voters. We can't just engage with uh, older, middle-aged and already registered voters. We have to go out and we have to uh, talk to parents. We have to talk to students. Um, in, in terms of college, Davis, actually, the UC Davis has one of the strongest college Republican groups in the state. Um, we have 25 plus active members. Um, so we do, Yola County does do a good job with college students. High school students, we do need to, we need, we need to, uh, increase our outreach. One of the things I think we're going to try to do is uh, put on events geared right towards younger voters, like movie nights with uh, with movies that um, uh, share what the Republican Party is about, about. And that's and do things like that, which will help our outreach uh, with, with younger voters. And I, I will just ask uh, you, Max, Max, what do you think parties should do to uh, for outreach to younger voters? Definitely just connect um, and make make your platforms known and really, uh, I liked the idea of the movie night. I think that's something some of my less politically inclined friends would be interested in and definitely appealing. I know they're all about social media. I personally don't do social media, but I think a lot of social media outreach would probably get to most high school students. And yeah, just finding ways to appeal to people who don't traditionally follow politics because they don't have a reason to care. And I think giving them a reason to care would be really successful. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I can see that. Okay, well, let's wrap things up here. Thank yes. you guys for your time. Do you have any final words uh, to contribute to this wonderful discussion? Well, let me just say thank you um, for reaching out to us. And thank you guys. I really am happy to have done this and hope that we can do more of these in other contexts and such. And ask you, why is my phone ringing now? <laughs> and 
you know, it's, it's a two, two way street, you know, our hand is out, your hand is out between the three of us and all of that, that let's continue this dialogue. Let's continue talking because we all want a world that's still there in 20, 30, 50, a hundred years and more. And we all want the same thing for the, for the United States. I know that we do. This is a wonderful country built on wonderful principles. I mean, I still, when I first time I saw the constitution, you know, a copy of it in DC, I was crying. Now, yeah, I'm a lawyer, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was just like, oh my goodness, here, imperfect people created this document to try to do something different. And we are still struggling with this imperfect union. But we got to be in it together because there ain't nothing better out there. <laughs> My internet's breaking up a little bit. So I, if there was a couple of pauses, that's why. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I wanted it. First of all, thank thank, uh, thank you, Max, for inviting us on. Um, thank both of you. I think this has been a, a great conversation. I think it's shown how, uh, how there's not just differences between the Republican and Democratic parties. And we want the same thing. We want the country to succeed. Uh, how we go about that, I think we may differ a little bit on, but that that's healthy as disagreement. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you guys both. I will let you get to your evenings. This went on a little longer than I expected, but wonderful things, wonderful ideas that you all brought up. A lot of things to think about going forward. Thank, thank you okay. for having us. Thank you guys so much. It was really great to talk with both of you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's our show for today. The News Cycle is a production of the Bedevil Hub in association with the Davis Enterprise. Daniel Louise Jimenez writes our theme music. The program is produced by Stella Mays and Max Davis Housefield. Our executive producer is Jihan Moon. We're trying to grow our listeners. Make sure to share the News Cycle with your friends. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us on the web at bluedevilhub.com and don't miss our radio broadcast. Mondays at 8 and Tuesdays at noon on 95.7 KDRT. You can also follow the Hub on social media. We're on Instagram at Blue Devil Hub and on Twitter at DHS Hub. Stay safe, have a good week, and we will see you next time.